Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. for Jim Jones, for his church, or for his own ambition. I wish I knew a man like Jim Jones. I wish I had a man to follow like Jim Jones. Welcome to episode three of The Truth About True Crime, a podcast series looking at some of the most shocking crimes of our lifetimes through a whole new lens. I'm your host, Amanda Knox. In the previous episode, we discussed the formation of the People's Temple and why people followed Jim Jones. In this episode, we'll be looking at how Jones used theatrics to generate awe and fear among his congregation, keeping them loyal and afraid. Here with me today via Skype, we have Jeff Gwynn, author of The Road to Jonestown and executive producer of the docuseries Jonestown Terror in the Jungle, and former members of the People's Temple, Jordan Vilches and Laura Johnston Cole. I think the big thing that I want to get into today is how Jim Jones created this theater for his followers. Laura, what was it that he did in his preaching that really captured people's attention? When I met Jim Jones, and I can only speak for myself, he seemed to say something and do it. Like he lived the life he talked about. And if he had been a hypocrite, it would have been really easy to see it because I saw him almost every day when I lived in Redwood Valley. So it wasn't what he said. It's the venue or the combination of what he said, what kinds of people he had collected, the diversity of people there. All of that was what made it so powerful to me. As somebody who's looking back, and as I would go around and I would meet people like Jordan and Laura and talk to them about their experience, what always staggered me was you had so many intelligent, capable people, but they weren't just all cookie cutter. You're talking about people with lots of different backgrounds and interests and desires to do things in life. And that struck me as maybe Jim Jones's great gift that he could find ways to touch so many different types of people. One of the chores for me in my research was listening to all the sermons on tape, and he would go on for three or four hours. And when I first listened, I thought, my God, the band's completely incoherent. You know, he's babbling for four hours. 
And then the more I listened, the more I realized that whether deliberately or instinctively, he's making sure that everyone who is sitting there is hearing something that directly touches him or her. Sometimes he'd quote biblical passages for the people who were true believers in the Bible and still followed him. Then he'd throw down the Bible and stomp on it with his foot and talk how it was the biggest cause of evil in the world. And the people who felt that way would somehow feel he agreed. Hmm. And that's a gift. Hebrews 4, the fourth chapter, the 12th verse, says the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. It discerns the thoughts. It knows the intents of the mind. It's able to separate bone from marrow. Anybody seen heaven? Anybody found Mother Mary? The only Christ you're going to find is within you. Throw aside religion. The reason America has not freed itself of racism, the reason the women in America only make half the salary of men is because of the Bible. The Bible is the root of all of our problems today. Racism is taught in it. Oppression is taught in it. If the Bibles would disappear, if religion would disappear, we would clean up the nation. We would clean up the world. We would do something about the here and now. But the Bible says by and by, when the morning comes, it's going to be a beautiful city or God's going to come down and rapture his people and take them up in the sky. I think that when you said the theater of Jim Jones, you really got it. Because I think, you know, he has to be a thespian because otherwise, why would people come a Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday morning every week to hear the same guys standing on the same podium? What he wanted to do is create such an event that you said, oh, I can't believe I missed that and wants you to come every single meeting. So he was a thespian. He was very much involved in dramatic play and drama, and that was the way he kept people coming back. Some people were there for different reasons, but still, the drama made it something less than boring. So, I mean, I think that all of that was called in when he did a presentation and when he gave a sermon. So I know that in the course of his sermon, not only would he present a number of differing ideas that maybe were in conflict with each other, but all of us seemed to like hold deeply in this kind of interesting, complex, negative capability way inside of ourselves. But also he healed people. People came to him and he healed them. And I was wondering if anyone could talk about the healings. At first, Jones presented himself as a mentalist. He would get up there and there maybe be 20 people come to see him and he would point to one or two and say, you know, you've got this problem. And the reason he knew was because he was listening to the talk, the little conversations that were going on before he got up to the podium to start. Later on, he would plant spies who would be listening before he took the stage. A woman named Patty Cartmel was particularly active in this, even in the early days, who would pass him little notes that the woman third from the left in the fourth row has a mother who's sick. And then Jones could announce, there's someone here, you know, I can see, yeah, you're right up there. You have a parent, a mother who is ill. Well, she's going to get better and people would be astonished. Who is Mrs. Ford? Stand up. Particularly, Mrs. Ford, you're going to be a great key here because you recognize God in this atmosphere. You recognize God in my body. 
as the temple of the Holy Ghost. The more you see of God, the more you reproduce of God. You have something on your throat, some difficulty in your throat. Yes, I do. In your, sh in your shoulder. Yes. Some crippling condition that enables it to move properly. Yes. But we're going to straighten this limb. We're going to take this problem out of the throat. There, Thank you, Jesus. There was always a bit of the charlatan, the sleight of hand, that was also involved. But to a certain portion of the population whose money he wanted, they not only wanted to show, they wanted the miracle cures. And Jones learned how to do that. But again, Laura and Jordan could describe, I think, the later things because they saw them themselves. Can you tell me about that, you guys? One of the healings that we don't really talk about is what happened to people who came to People's Temple who were drug addicts and who were prone to violence. And in a sense, they were healed to become responsible members of the community. And some of the people who were the most successful in Jonestown were the people who had come in with really serious problems and somehow in Jonestown, with that really supportive environment, they actually did get healed from being dysfunctional in the greater community. So I think that there are physical healings, and I think that there are also psychological or communal healings that made us work harder and internalize a work ethic that was healthy for people. So it's a layered kind of healing besides that. I know that you say that some of the healings were obviously fake. I read one about someone who they had drugged and then made her think that she had broken her leg, but then they cut off her cast and had her run around the room. And, and so there was a lot of genuine deception. But so in your experience, he very genuinely had special powers to heal. I think he did, particularly at the beginning, before he was so exhausted with all the things he had decided to take on. I think the later, as you look at the difference between maybe 65 and 78, I think, that, you know, by 78, he had really perfected the spying part so that a lot was really fabrication. But I think early on, and certainly some of his healings, I do think were authentic. On the topic of healing, I think any kind of healing that takes place is something that happens within the individual themselves. And so if there were actual genuine healings, I think that had to do with the person and their own inner abilities for that to happen, for which he may have been a catalyst. And you have now had a stroke. It's left you paralyzed. Your arms paralyzed yeah. and your legs paralyzed. Yeah. I want you to stand. I want you to stand. You said he has to be God. Now in that recognition, straighten that left arm. Up, up, sister. Look at me, not at the arm. Bring that arm up now. Bring it up. Bring it up. The hand. Straighten the hand. Now, the leg. Look at me. Look at God in personification. Straighten that leg. In the name of God Christ. Straighten that leg. That's it. That's it. Now you got it. Now you got it. Now you got it. She is completely healed. Completely healed. 
And at the same time, he did have this incredible power to move people, literally. He moved people from Indiana to California and then later Guyana. I wonder, what do you think was his motivation in moving people? In Indianapolis, as Jim Jones was doing, uh, it very wonderful work, mostly. There was also the growing sense with Jones that he shared with his congregation that nuclear war was coming any time and there were only certain places in the world where you might be safe from such a thing. If we have a nuclear holocaust with an earth tremor that will split off all through the San Andreas Fault and drop everything west of the San Andreas Fault into the sea, then we're prepared because I've got a cavern deep, deep in the mountains that can take care of every one of you. No fallout can get to you. No radiation can get to you. One of the reasons that Jones told people he knew in Indianapolis that he wanted to leave there and go to California was that it would be safer there. The winds wouldn't blow all the terrible nuclear waste in that direction. Chicago got bombed but also that he would be able to accomplish more in California. Indianapolis was such a sort of closed, not so famous community, but out in California, there would be more attention. That meant that the things People's Temple stood for could be articulated to a wider audience. How many guests do we have in our assembly today? How many who are new, who are visiting us today? Hold your hands up, please, so that some worker can come and sit by you and familiarize you with truth and some of the things that we are doing that would be fascinating to you. Stand up, guests. We are so happy to have you in our midst. We welcome you from the depths of our heart. I think in each case, when Jones wanted to move the temple, he wanted a larger stage for himself. They go out to the valley in California, and it takes, gosh, a while. But you build up momentum. Then he gets into San Francisco and Los Angeles. San Francisco is, at that time, in American history, that's the place to be if you want change, if you want dynamism. And in Los Angeles, that was the money. I believe Laura Johnston Cole told me that uh, Los Angeles was all the money. You would go there because you could get so many donations. But he had to have more. There had to be something else. There had to be something bigger. And what tremendous stress that must have put not only on him, but the people who followed him. I mean, with Lauren Jordan, were you ever allowed to believe that you were accomplishing enough? Or was there something more you could do? How could you sacrifice more to the cause? It didn't really feel like sacrifice as much as donating. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't a negative connotation of how long could you last before you sleep? It was how much could you do before you fell over exhausted? So in a way it was put in the kinds of terms that were just unrealistic terms. I mean, somehow he persuaded us that the more dedicated you were, the better. And so it didn't feel like punishment. It felt like, you know, I was getting up there with the saints or something. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, you're answerable not only to yourself, but to each other. You're pushing each other farther to make each other better. Was it always positive? Or was there also like a sense of being threatened by something and that pushing you forward? Well, that was certainly an issue that was a, a factor behind that helped fuel people's desire to stay up later and do more, that there was always a threat of, um, on the part of the government or some enemy of some sort. How did he create that sense of an existential threat for you? And how did he convince you that his way was the only solution? Well, there's several factors that, that play a part in that. One is isolation, repetition, fear. It's an insidious sort of thing that wears on you. A former Temple member named Terry Buford O'Shea told me during one night when everybody had pretty much worked the night through and were just exhausted, but were still pleased to have contributed so much that Jim Jones turned to Terry and said to her, if you keep them poor and you keep them tired, they'll stay with you forever. He knew exactly what he was doing here, I think. I think of him as a collector. I think it would have been really obvious if he had been a Jim Jones like Reverend Ike or somebody who collected jewelry and limos and, you know, all the trappings of being successful. But he collected souls. He collected identities of the people who joined. And I think that that empowered him to know that he had all these people committed who were like waiting on his word to behave a certain way or do a certain thing. So those were the notches in his belt. To me, you know, it's almost like entrapment to be involved because we were listening to his glowing words and he had this whole second strategy of how to pull us in and keep us in there when really bottom line, he was accumulating power, which I think was his primary motivation. It was certainly not anything to do with religion or civility or human rights. It was really power from day one. So why did Jim Jones feel that he needed something more than an ideological threat? Why was he making up tangible threats? I know at some point he even faked an assassination attempt against his own life. Jeff, can you tell me about that? In the valley, one Sunday, I believe it was, wasn't it Jordan and Laura? Yeah. Uh, there was a lunch between the services. There are picnic tables or something set up and everybody's having lunch and Jim Jones, as he normally does, is wandering around and chatting with people. All of a sudden, a shot rings out, and Jim Jones falls to the ground, and people gather around him, and you can see this red stain spreading against the yellow shirt. Oh my God, father's been shot, and where did the shot come from? According to Jim Jr., his brother Stephen's dog starts racing towards this grove of trees nearby, barking frantically. And Jim Jones, who apparently is about to expire, finds the strength to sit up and say, no, the shot came from over there. And he points in the other direction, a location where I guess somebody who was very anti-Temple had lived. A couple of Jones's closest followers take him into their house and everybody's waiting to hear that father died. 
and then he reappears miraculously healed just a little dent in his chest where the bullet supposedly went in and that he had sort of brought himself back to life a reminder first of his great powers and secondly that there's these people out there who are actually ready to murder us at least that's the story as i've been told it and again we've got some witnesses here so i think they could tell us better yeah lauren jordan were you there i was do you remember that jordan i do that was pretty much how it went and it wasn't long after that that the shirt was in a frame I think that there were times that Jim overdid the drama. I remember it all pretty clearly, just as you told it, but I don't remember having a huge emotional reaction to it, and I, I'm not exactly sure why. I, somehow, it didn't... Um, Did it not seem real? You know, so many times with his drama, he would go like one step beyond what was believable. And I don't know if that was it. I don't know if the gun shot was a little bit different. I don't really know. I think that that's the case for me too. As young as I was, I I remember being surprised and shocked, but it was a little bit too far. And I think that on some level, the fact that it wasn't real was really in our thoughts. And I think that's probably true for many of us. How did that change your relationship with him? Did your skepticism of his resurrection make you feel that somehow your shared worldview was delegitimized in any way, or was it important to sort of overlook the theatrics? It wasn't even a conscious thing. It was more deeper and not on the surface of my awareness. Hmm. That's exactly the way I said I never said to myself, well, that was really some phony BS. I never said that. But somehow, at some level, I remember I was not distraught. I just kind of took it in stride and moved on. I guess there was a part of me that said, okay, so he's not perfect. And so this came up, but it didn't change my opinion of anything, but I didn't buy it. Hmm. I think there's this thing that happens too where to keep going and to keep being a part of this thing, there's this rationalization that happens in your thinking so that I'm sure that many time along the way in the temple journey, there were times when there was a lot of uh, cognitive dissonance. And so to deal with that, there's something that has to happen in the mind so that you can move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. If anything, I, I get it because, you know, even police use interrogation techniques that are very good at putting you in a place of cognitive dissonance and of self-doubt and allowing yourself to sort of be brought along a story or a journey that someone who you trust offers you, someone in a position of compared to you, unbridled authority. And Mm -hmm. the important thing is you compared to them, you are the one who is not the author of what is true and what is real in the world, someone else is. And so if you're going to stand up to that, you might as well be crazy. Did it feel like his theatrics were an attempt to legitimize the overarching fear you were supposed to feel about the outside world? Yeah, I'm sure he was attempting to do that. He wanted everybody's attention all the time. 
So if he could do it by getting shot, he would have 100% attention. If he could have it by resurrecting himself, he'd have everybody's attention. So, I mean, he is somebody who wanted to be the center of attention all the time. He wanted you to be thinking about him, even if you didn't see him. So I think that was to legitimize the paranoia that he tried to inspire in us with our neighbors being the ones who are going to shoot. So I think he used every means possible to pull us together and unify us against the greater outside. Someone happened to slip into my room back there and put a needle in the shorts and I was too busy to think about it. And they put some kind of poison on it and that's why people were walking me through the congregation. But you never knew the difference. And I'm here just as I always will remain. It made me somewhat vomitous. And uh, needless to say, I would like to just move on with the program. But I think some of you who are given over to such evil minds should learn by now that it will take something more to remove God than you're accustomed to doing. He always wanted to be the focus of each individual's attention at all times. He wanted to be the focus of his followers' attention at all times. So the pressure that there must have been to always be odd, you can't ever let down, even just one-on-one. -on -one. And in the valley, as he starts to get more heavily into drugs, a lot of the problem may have begun because if you're keeping your followers up 23 hours a night, well, you've got to be up the same amount of time. A former member named Tim Carter said to me that Jones sometimes at his office in the valley, and there's buildings that the temple owns, and there's work going on in the different buildings, that Jones would come in and see what how people were doing in the letter writing group or that group, and it's the middle of the night. And if he saw somebody that, that didn't seem busy, he would say, hey, if you don't have anything to do, you know, knock on my door any time of the day or night and I'll find something for you to do because <laughs> I always work. Hmm. I think it was in a sense that pressure to always be on, to be performing as Lauren Jordan pointed out, you know, and so when he gets into the drugs and that's gonna have a different effect on the personality. I don't know why anybody wouldn't be in here. There's nothing else but false gods. It's the only true God that's honored in this place. The only thing true in the whole church world. I wish I knew a man like Jim Jones. Now, I've never preached like this before, but this is just a depth of my heart. I wish I had a man to follow like Jim Jones. I'd be so glad. Oh, I would take just anything he said. I would do anything he wanted me to do. I'd give everything to follow a man like Jim Jones. But I have to be that man. It's a lonely job being that man. Because I've got to be the man that will never let you down. And I never will. I've got to be the man that's as dependable as the rock of Gibraltar. I've got to be as unchangeable as the sun. And I am. But oh, how I'd like to have a man to follow like you have. To my guests, Jeff, Jordan, and Laura, thank you so much for taking your time to be here with me. 
Thank you to everyone else for listening, and make sure to tune in to the next episode to hear about Jim Jones's downward spiral and move to Guyana from Shan Nicholson, the director of the docuseries Jonestown Terror in the Jungle. It feels like a plate spinner that at any minute it's all going to come crashing down. Like many people who have a lot of stress they have trouble dealing with, he turned to drugs. I'm no place where I can take you where there'll be no more racism. I'm no just a place. Find the truth about true crime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.